Section 22 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canin. Youth 1, Part 1. Youth. Christophori facem dae quacumque tueris, Ilanempe dae non morte mala morieris. 1. The House of Euler. The house was plunged in silence. Since Melchior's death everything seemed dead. Now that his loud voice was stilled, from morning to night nothing was heard but the wearisome murmuring of the river. Christophe hurled himself into his work. He took a fiercely angry pleasure in self-castigation for having wished to be happy. To expressions of sympathy and kind words he made no reply, but was proud and stiff. Without a word he went about his daily task and gave his lessons with icy politeness. His pupils who knew of his misfortune were shocked by his insensibility, but those who were older and had some experience of sorrow knew that this apparent coldness might, in a child, be used only to conceal suffering, and they pitied him. He was not grateful for their sympathy. Even music could bring him no comfort. He played without pleasure and as a duty. It was as though he found a cruel joy in no longer taking pleasure in anything, or in persuading himself that he did not, in depriving himself of every reason for living, and yet going on. His two brothers, terrified by the silence of the house of death, ran away from it as quickly as possible. Rodolphe went into the office of his uncle Theodore and lived with him, and Ernest, after trying two or three trades, found work on one of the Rhine steamers plying between Mines and Cologne, and he used to come back only when he wanted money. Christophe was left alone with his mother in the house, which was too large for them, and the meagerness of their resources and the payments of certain debts which had been discovered after his father's death forced them, whatever pain it might cost, to seek another more lowly and less expensive dwelling. They found a little flat, two or three rooms on the second floor of a house in the market street. It was a noisy district in the middle of the town, far from the river, far from the trees, far from the country and all the familiar places. But they had to consult reason, not sentiment, and Christophe found in it a fine opportunity for gratifying his bitter creed of self-mortification. Besides, the owner of the house, old Registrar Euler, was a friend of his grandfather, and knew the family. That was enough for Louisa, who was lost in her empty house, and was irresistibly drawn towards those who had known the creatures whom she had loved. They got ready to leave. They took long draughts of the bitter melancholy of the last days passed by the sad, beloved fireside, that was to be left forever. They dared hardly tell their sorrow. They were ashamed of it, or afraid. Each thought that they ought not to show their weakness to the other. At table, sitting alone in a dark room with half-closed shutters, they dared not raise their voices. They ate hurriedly and did not look at each other for fear of not being able to conceal their trouble. They parted as soon as they had finished. Christophe went back to his work, but as soon as he was free for a moment, he would come back, go stealthily home, and creep on tiptoe to his room or to the attic. Then he would shut the door, sit down in a corner 
on an old trunk or on the window ledge, or stay there without thinking, letting the indefinable buzzing and humming of the old house, which trembled with the lightest tread, thrill through him. His heart would tremble with it. He would listen anxiously for the faintest breath in or out of doors, for the creaking of floors, for all the imperceptible familiar noises. He knew them all. He would lose consciousness. His thoughts would be filled with the images of the past, and he would issue from his stupor only at the sound of St. Martin's clock, reminding him that it was time to go. In the room below him he could hear Louise's footsteps passing softly to and fro. Then for hours she could not be heard. She made no noise. Christophe would listen intently. He would go down, a little uneasy, as one is for a long time after a great misfortune. He would push the door ajar. Louisa would turn her back on him. She would be sitting in front of a cupboard in the midst of a heap of things—rags, old belongings, odd garments, treasures—which she had brought out intending to sort them. But she had no strength for it. Everything reminded her of something. She would turn and turn it in her hands and begin to dream. It would drop from her hands. She would stay for hours together with her arms hanging down, lying back exhausted in a chair, given up to a stupor of sorrow. Poor Louisa was now spending most of her life in the past, that sad past which had been very niggardly of joy for her. But she was so used to suffering that she was still grateful for the least tenderness shown to her and the pale lights which had shone here and there in the drab days of her life were still enough to make them bright. All the evil that Melchior had done her was forgotten. She remembered only the good. Her marriage had been the great romance of her life. If Melchior had been drawn into it by a caprice, of which he had quickly repented, she had given herself with her whole heart. She thought that she was loved as much as she had loved, and to Melchior she was ever most tenderly grateful. She did not try to understand what he had become in the sequel. Incapable of seeing reality as it is, she only knew how to bear it as it is, humbly and honestly, as a woman who has no need of understanding life in order to be able to live. What she could not explain she left to God for explanation. In her singular piety, she put upon God the responsibility for all the injustice that she had suffered at the hands of Melchior and the others, and only visited them with the good that they had given her. And so her life of misery had left her with no bitter memory. She only felt worn out, weak as she was, by those years of privation and fatigue. And now that Melchior was no longer there, now that two of her sons were gone from their home, and the third seemed to be able to do without her, she had lost all heart for action. She was tired, sleepy, her will was stupefied. She was going through one of those crises of neurasthenia, which often come upon active and industrious people in the decline of life, when some unforeseen event deprives them of every reason for living. She had not the heart even to finish the stocking she was knitting to tidy the drawer in which she was looking, to get up to shut the window, she would sit there, without a thought, without strength, save for recollection. She was conscious of her collapse, and was ashamed of it or blushed for it. She tried to hide it from her son, and Christophe, wrapped up in the egoism of his own grief, never noticed it. 
No doubt he was often secretly impatient with his mother's slowness in speaking and acting and doing the smallest thing. But different though her ways were from her usual activity, he never gave a thought to the matter until then. Suddenly on that day it came home to him for the first time when he surprised her in the midst of her rags, turned out on the floor, heaped up at her feet, in her arms and in her lap. Her neck was drawn out, her head was bowed, her face was stiff and rigid. When she heard him come in she started, her white cheeks were suffused with red, with an instinctive movement she tried to hide the things she was holding, and muttered with an awkward smile, you see, I was sorting. The sight of the poor soul stranded among the relics of the past cut to his heart, and he was filled with pity. But he spoke with a bitter asperity, and seemed to scold, to drag her from her apathy. Come, come, mother, you must not stay there in the middle of all that dust, with the room all shut up. It is not good for you. You must pull yourself together, and have done with all this. Yes, she said meekly. She tried to get up to put the things back in the drawer, but she sat down again at once and listlessly let them fall from her hands. "'Oh, I can't! I can't!' she moaned. "'I shall never finish!' He was frightened. He leaned over her. He caressed her forehead with his hands. "'Come, mother, what is it?' he said. "'Shall I help you? Are you ill?' She did not answer. She gave a sort of stifled sob. He took her hands and knelt down by her side, the better to see her in the dusky room. "'Mother!' he said anxiously. Louisa laid her head on his shoulder and burst into tears. "'My boy! My boy!' she cried, holding close to him. "'My boy! You will not leave me! Promise me that you will not leave me!' His heart was torn with pity. "'No, mother, no. I will not leave you. What made you think of such a thing?' I am so unhappy. They have all left me, all. She pointed to the things all about her, and he did not know whether she was speaking of them or of her sons and the dead. You will stay with me? You will not leave me? What should I do if you went too? I will not go, I tell you. We will stay together. Don't cry, I promise. She went on weeping. She could not stop herself. He dried her eyes with his handkerchief. "'What is it, mother dear? Are you in pain?' "'I don't know. I don't know what it is.' She tried to calm herself and to smile. "'I do try to be sensible. I do. But just nothing at all makes me cry. You see, I'm doing it again. Forgive me. I am so stupid. I am old. I have no strength left. I have no taste for anything any more.' I am no good for anything. I wish I were buried with all the rest. He held her to him, close, like a child. Don't worry, mother. Be calm. Don't think about it. Gradually she grew quiet. It is foolish. I am ashamed. But what is it? What is it? She, who had always worked so hard, could not understand why her strength had suddenly snapped and she was humiliated to the very depths of her being. He pretended not to see it. "'A little weariness, mother,' he said, trying to speak carelessly. "'It is nothing. You will see. It is nothing.' But he too was anxious. From his childhood he had been accustomed to see her brave, 
resigned, in silence withstanding every test, and he was astonished to see her suddenly broken. He was afraid. He helped her to sort the things scattered on the floor. Every now and then she would linger over something, but he would gently take it from her hands, and she suffered him. From that time on he took pains to be more with her. As soon as he had finished his work, instead of shutting himself up in his room, as he loved to do, he would return to her. He felt her loneliness, and that she was not strong enough to be left alone. There was danger in leaving her alone. He would sit by her side in the evening near the open window, looking on to the road. The view would slowly disappear. The people were returning home. Little lights appeared in the houses far off. They had seen it all a thousand times, but soon they would see it no more. They would talk disjointedly. They would point out to each other the smallest of the familiar incidents and expectations of the evening, always with fresh interest. They would have long intimate silences, or Louisa, for no apparent reason, would tell some reminiscence, some disconnected story that passed through her mind. Her tongue was loosed a little now that she felt that she was with one who loved her. She tried hard to talk. It was difficult for her, for she had grown used to living apart from her family. She looked upon her sons and her husband as too clever to talk to her, and she had never dared to join in their conversation. Christophe's tender care was a new thing to her, and infinitely sweet, though it made her afraid. She deliberated over her words. She found it difficult to express herself. Her sentences were left unfinished and obscure. Sometimes she was ashamed of what she was saying. She would look at her son and stop in the middle of her narrative. But he would press her hand, and she would be reassured. He was filled with love and pity for the childish, motherly creature to whom he had turned when he was a child, and now she turned to him for support. And he took a melancholy pleasure in her prattle that had no interest for anybody but himself, in her trivial memories of a life that had always been joyless and mediocre, though it seemed to Louisa to be of infinite worth. Sometimes he would try to interrupt her, he was afraid that her memories would make her sadder than ever, and he would urge her to sleep. She would understand what he was at, and would say with gratitude in her eyes, No, I assure you, it does one good. Let us stay a little longer. They would stay until the night was far gone and the neighbors were abed. Then they would say good night, she, a little comforted by being rid of some of her trouble, he, with a heavy heart, under this new burden, added to that which already he had to bear. The day came for their departure. On the night before they stayed longer than usual in the unlighted room. They did not speak. Every now and then Louisa moaned, "'Fear God! Fear God!' Christophe tried to keep her attention fixed on the thousand details of the morrow's removal. She would not go to bed until he gently compelled her. But he went up to his room and did not go to bed for a long time. When leaning out of the window, he tried to gaze through the darkness to see for the last time the moving shadows of the river beneath the house. He heard the wind in the tall trees in Minna's garden. The sky was black. There was no one in the street. 
A cold rain was just falling. The weathercocks creaked. In a house nearby, a child was crying. The night weighed with an overwhelming heaviness upon the earth and upon his soul. The dull chiming of the hours, the cracked note of the halves and quarters, dropped one after another into the grim silence, broken only by the sound of the rain on the roofs and the cobbles. When Christophe at last made up his mind to go to bed, chilled in body and soul, he heard the window below him shut, and as he lay, he thought sadly that it is cruel for the poor to dwell on the past, for they have no right to have a past like the rich. They have no home, no corner of the earth wherein to house their memories, their joys, their sorrows, all their days are scattered in the wind. Next day, in beating rain, they moved their scanty furniture to their new dwelling. Fisher, the old furniture dealer, lent them a cart and a pony. He came and helped them himself. But they could not take everything, for the rooms to which they were going were much smaller than the old. Christophe had to make his mother leave the oldest and most useless of their belongings. It was not altogether easy. The least thing had its worth for her. A shaky table, a broken chair, she wished to leave nothing behind. Fisher, fortified by the authority of his old friendship with Jean-Michel, had to join Christophe in complaining. And good fellow that he was, and understanding her grief, had even to promise to keep some of her precious rubbish for her against the day when she should want it again. Then she agreed to tear herself away. The two brothers had been told of the removal, but Ernest came on the night before to say that he could not be there, and Rodolphe appeared for a moment about noon. He watched them load the furniture, gave some advice, and went away again, looking mightily busy. The procession set out through the muddy streets. Christophe led the horse, which slipped on the greasy cobbles. Louisa walked by her son's side, and tried to shelter him from the rain. And so they had a melancholy homecoming in the damp rooms, that were made darker than ever by the dull light coming from the lowering sky. They could not have fought against the depression that was upon them, had it not been for the attentions of their landlord and his family. But when the cart had driven away, as night fell, leaving the furniture heaped up in the room, and Christophe and Louisa were sitting, worn out, one on a box, the other on a sack, they heard a little dry cough on the staircase. There was a knock at the door. Old Euler came in. He begged pardon elaborately for disturbing his guests, and said that by way of celebrating their first evening he hoped that they would be kind enough to sup with himself and his family. Louisa, stunned by her sorrow, wished to refuse. Christophe was not much more tempted than she by this friendly gathering, but the old man insisted, and Christophe, thinking that it would be better for his mother not to spend their first evening in their new home alone with her thoughts, made her accept. They went down to the floor below, where they found the whole family collected, the old man, his daughter, his son-in-law, Fogel, and his grandchildren, a boy and a girl, both a little younger than Christophe. They clustered around their guests, bade them welcome, 
asked if they were tired, if they were pleased with their rooms, if they needed anything, putting so many questions that Christophe, in bewilderment, could make nothing of them, for everybody spoke at once. The soup was placed on the table, they sat down, but the noise went on. Amalia, Euler's daughter, had set herself at once to acquaint Louisa with local details, with the topography of the district, the habits and advantages of the house, the time when the milkman called, the time when she got up, the various tradespeople and the prices that she paid. She did not stop until she had explained everything. Louisa, half asleep, tried hard to take an interest in the information, but the remarks which she ventured showed that she had understood not a word, and provoked Amalia to indignant exclamations and repetition of every detail. Old Euler, a clerk, tried to explain to Christophe the difficulties of a musical career. Christophe's other neighbor, Rosa, Amalia's daughter, never stopped talking from the moment when they sat down. So volubly that she had no time to breathe, she lost her breath in the middle of a sentence. But at once she was off again. Vogel was gloomy and complained of the food, and there were embittered arguments on the subject. Amalia, Euler, the girl left off talking to take part in the discussion, and there were endless controversies as to whether there was too much salt in the stew or not enough. They called each other to witness, and naturally no two opinions were the same. Each despised his neighbor's taste, and thought only his own healthy and reasonable. They might have gone on arguing until the last judgment. But in the end, they all joined in crying out upon the bad weather. They all commiserated Louisa and Christophe upon their troubles, and in terms which moved him greatly they praised him for his courageous conduct. They took great pleasure in recalling not only the misfortunes of their guests, but also their own, and those of their friends, and all their acquaintance. And they all agreed that the good are always unhappy, and that there is joy only for the selfish and dishonest. They decided that life is sad, that it is quite useless, and that they were all better dead were it not the indubitable will of God that they should go on living so as to suffer. All these ideas came very near to Christophe's actual pessimism. He thought the better of his landlord, and closed his eyes to their little oddities. When he went upstairs again with his mother to the disordered rooms, they were weary and sad but they felt a little less lonely, and while Christophe lay awake through the night, for he could not sleep because of his weariness and the noise of the neighborhood, and listened to the heavy carts shaking the walls and the breathing of the family sleeping below, he tried to persuade himself that he would be, if not happy, at least less unhappy here with these good people. A little tiresome, if the truth be told, who suffered from like misfortunes, who seemed to understand him, and whom he thought he understood. But when at last he did fall asleep, he was roused unpleasantly at dawn by the voices of his neighbors arguing, and the creaking of a pump worked furiously by someone who was in a hurry to swill the yard and the stairs. End of section 22